a reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with him to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, The Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give you thanks on this Ascension Day for the good news that Christ is in fact risen and ascended and rules today over the earth from his heavenly throne. Would you be with us this morning and continue to meet us here in our time of worship? Would you open your word to us and by your spirit, would you help us to rest and to trust in the reality that you in fact are upon the throne of Christ and that we can trust you even as we enter into spaces of grief and sorrow in our life. So we commit this time to you and ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> grief and hope are like siblings who share a room in your soul and your mind, aren't they? I mean, just think about it. It's, there's this way for these two to be roommates in a way that works, that makes sense, that even feels mysteriously right. 
a way in which grief and hope acknowledge one another as co-inhabitants, so to speak, of the same space in your life and in your story. And it's almost like when they're relating to one another in this way that they, they almost dance together in this mutual dependence and struggle at the same time in which each grief and hope becomes more fully what it needs to be by virtue of its entanglement with the other. Yet there are many other ways in which this roommate thing doesn't work out, right? Where grief and hope uh, don't live so well in the same space. Perhaps one of them becomes too dominant or too controlling to want to share the space, or the other just shrinks away uh, into some small and inaccessible corner of your soul. Or perhaps the two just stop talking to one another and grow apart pretending to not have anything to do with the other and as if they have no joint claim on the same space. And so what grows up is a griefless hope and a hopeless grief who have turned their shared room into a kind of timeshare in your soul where one of them can be there at a time, but they can't both be there together and they try to stay out of each other's way. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does that ring true at all? I just made it up, so I don't know if it's actually workable, but that's my working theory this week about grief and hope. And when grief begins to take over to the point that it seems like hope may not have a place, uh, that's a dark spot to be in. And when hope begins to require an active attempt on our part to kick grief out of the house, rather than embracing it and making space for it in our lives, That's a kind of impractical place as well. It's an impossible place. It's an illusion. And our passage from 1 Thessalonians 4 today that we just read is one in which the Apostle Paul actually speaks to this profound and mysterious relationship between grief and hope. It's a famous passage that's brought comfort and hope to many who grieve, and it's also an easily misunderstood passage that has been used and abused and misread uh, by lots of Christians over the years in ways that have twisted the vision of hope that we get in this passage, uh, and in turn has produced in many Christians, maybe us, a twisted way of relating to grief in their own lives and in the world, in the lives of others. The Apostle Paul begins this section of the letter, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, because Paul knows that what we hope for and what we hope in matter. He knows that the content of our hope matters because it shapes so powerfully the way that we relate to everything that happens in our lives. It relates to our whole experience, and especially our experience of the hard things, the sorrows, the losses, the injustices, the disappointments, the brokenness that marks our own lives, the lives of our loved ones, and the life of the world in which we live. Yet ironically and sadly, This passage that we just read in 1 Thessalonians um, that helped the Christians in Thessalonica and, and all over the early church to be better informed about their hope is the same passage that has led many modern Christians in this part of the world to be misinformed about our hope, which has had the unfortunate effect of creating a kind of disconnect between a heavenly hope that Christians claim for themselves and offer to others and then the real sorrows, the real grief of the world in which we live and of which we're a part. And so as we get into this passage, I just want to ask two questions of it. One is this, so what is the vision of the hope that Paul gives us in this passage? And then secondly, what does it look like to let that hope actually transform the way we grieve and the way we walk with others through their grief? 
So those two questions. First, what is the vision of hope that Paul gives us in this passage? And first of all, we just need to acknowledge it's not the rapture scene that you may have encountered through the Left Behind books or other expressions of that theological tradition from which we get stuff like that. Although this verse is, verse 17, it is where that word rapture actually comes from into our world. Um, the Latin translators of the Greek use this word rapio to render that word that's, that appears as caught up in verse 17, and it's where we get that English word rapture. But Paul here, and really everywhere, um, he's not talking about anything that remotely resembles what you have in mind when you think rapture. If your view of that word, your understanding of that word, that concept has been shaped by like left behind-esque stuff, okay? Not even close. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about a parade, actually. Uh, that's how the Thessalonians would have heard this term, coming of the Lord, as this royal arrival, the way an emperor or a king rolls into town with an entourage. It's a parade. And it's a parade, the scene that Paul is portraying, it's a parade from heaven that is this crew, this heavenly crew that accompanies Jesus, who's the returning king from heaven, and it includes all the people who belong to Jesus and who've shared in his sufferings on earth. And the point he seems to be emphasizing here in this part of the letter is that those who have died will be just as fully included in the parade as those who are still living. Whether that's still living at the time of Christ's return or still living at the time of the writing of the letter, uh, that's it, either way, it, the point is the same. Because Paul, he's not writing here to convince his readers that there will be a resurrection of the dead. They already believe that. They already believe that there will be a day on which God raises the dead. And he's not writing to convince them that Jesus who died and who was raised and who ascended to heaven will return one day. They already believe that too. They seem to have a pretty good sense of that. He commends them for understanding these things. The apparent issue that Paul is writing to clarify is how those two events actually relate to one another. Jesus' return and the raising of the dead. And particularly, the issue they seem to be fuzzy about is the timing, like the schedule of events around the big Jesus parade when he comes back. The question seems to be, will their friends who have died, will they be raised before the parade so that they get to participate? Or will they be raised after the parade in, in a way that they'll miss, they'll miss it? Because you see, to be included in the parade is to share in the honor of Christ. That's how, that's how the whole picture is playing out, right? It's the returning king who is the victorious one who was crucified at the hands of the empire. He was shamed, he was put to death, condemned as a criminal, yet honored by God in his resurrection, enthroned on high, and here he comes back into town as the returning victorious king, and to share in his parade of victory is to share in his honor. And so to be included in the parade would be to be included in this public vindication and restoration for all of those who had suffered shame and violence at the hands of Rome, all those who had been pushed out to the margins of society because of their faith in Jesus, those who had shared in the sufferings of Christ by entering into a cross-shaped way of living toward God and their neighbor and had been humiliated as such, would they get the opportunity to be included in the entourage 
of the king? Would his honor and glory be something that they too would be allowed to share? Or are they going to miss out? Will those who had been publicly humiliated not then be publicly vindicated at the king's return? That's the issue at hand. Is will, will they rise before or after the parade? And Paul's response is, no, they won't miss it. They won't miss it. Those who have preceded you in death, those who have gone before you, will know, will, they will not be left out of the public honor and vindication that will be for God's people at the return of Christ. What has happened to Jesus in his death and resurrection will happen to you and your loved ones as well. That's the hope. And the way Paul describes this scene is he actually borrows Old Testament imagery of clouds. Clouds are really important in the Bible as accompanying the presence of God and God's revelation, right? You think of a cloud going with the people of Israel through the wilderness. You think of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, this heavenly figure coming on the clouds. Paul takes that image, he takes this symbol, and he begins to use it to tell this story of the Lord's return. Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming on clouds. And what happens in this scene is just this. The parade of the king is coming to earth. It's coming from heaven. It's coming on the clouds. And as the parade gets nearer and nearer to the earth, we see the Lord himself, Jesus, give the command that the dead should be raised. Think to John's gospel, that moment where Jesus says, Lazarus, come out at the tomb. He gives the command, and in this way of almost painting a picture of that future day, Jesus in his earthly life demonstrates the way that he speaks forth life even out of death in the earth. And so the scene is that Jesus gives the command, the angel who does his bidding gives his word, the trumpet blasts, the dead are raised, and this whole company of Christ's people, both those who had died and those still alive, all come out together to greet their coming king. And what happens is they come out in front the way a dignitary would come out to meet an emperor. See, the people of highest honor in the city, when an emperor or the king would come to town, the most distinguished people, the people of highest honor, would come outside the city gates, out into the road, to be the first ones to greet the king. And then they would join the parade and ride back into town as part of it. And the picture here is just that. That those who have died with Christ and those who have entered into the sufferings of Christ will be the ones who go outside the city gates to greet the king, to be the first to welcome him, to be the first to share in his glory and will ride with him back into town. It's just that this parade is a vertical one. It's coming from heaven to earth. And so where do they meet him? In the clouds, which is a place where you meet God in the Bible. That's the picture that Paul is painting for the Thessalonians to give them the hope that they need to understand that the promise of God is for them. And the promise of God is for their loved ones who have died. And so as they're asking the question, will those who've shared in Christ's sufferings also share in his honor and his glory, Paul gives them the answer, yes. Yes. It's not in vain. The promise is real. You are included, and so are your loved ones. And he says, and because that is true, because Christ has died, because he has been raised, because he will come again, and because that pattern that has marked his story now marks yours, and that is your hope, 
Don't grieve as though that were not your hope. Grieve according to that hope. And so the second question for us to consider is just what does that look like? What does it look like to let that hope, that moment of being caught up and included in the coming of Christ's entourage, his honor, his glory, to be sharing in that as he comes to earth to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? What does it look like to let that hope actually transform the way we grieve? Well, first thought is it doesn't look like not grieving. It's kind of an unfortunate misreading of, of this verse here where he says, you know, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. What he's not saying is, since you have hope, don't grieve. That's not what he's saying at all. I mean, in fact, that would make no sense of things we know about Paul elsewhere, right? If you read his letter to the Philippians, there's a moment where he's talking about a friend of his who's been on the brink of death. And he says that when God delivered that friend from this near fatal illness, God also delivered Paul from sorrow upon sorrow that he would have felt had he lost his friend in that moment. So Paul expresses in these, in these really you know, vivid ways what it looks like to be a person who grieves that which God grieves. So he's not saying don't grieve. He can't be saying that. We see Paul grieving. We see Jesus grieving. He's not saying that. What he's saying is grieve differently. Grieve differently in a good way, in a Jesus way, if you will. He's continuing this section we were looking at last week about the difference among God's people in contrast to the world around them. We talked last week about various areas of what it looks like to be different in a good way, in a Jesus way, not in a weird, toxic way. And here he's bringing that same conversation forward into this space of grief. He's saying grieve differently in a good way, a way that's good for you in a way that's good for your neighbors. In verse 14, Paul says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. And that is the basis of Christian hope. Christian hope is resurrection hope. It's not any other kind of hope. And resurrection hope makes no sense apart from grief and death. It can't possibly be detached from death. What would a resurrection be apart from death? But it also doesn't leave you stuck with death. It doesn't leave the grief the same. It's transformative of it. And so what Paul is saying is that so that we also, we, we grieve in a way that is transformed by the hope we have in Christ. And that's going to look like not grieving in a way that's fundamentally shaped by a different sort of hope. So a couple different ideas. What are those other hopes that become operative in our world that we should at least be aware of as we think about the, the ways in which we might grieve in, in ways that are not transformed by this hope? I think one counterfeit hope that makes its way into our world is sort of that wishful thinking version of hope. right? Hope as just what I wish were true. Um, it, hope that's based on really nothing more than what you think or feel or might even just generate. And one of the examples in my mind that sticks out 
so clearly about this is uh, I've, I've been a Saturday Night Live fan for much of my life, and I remember watching the 50th anniversary show. And if, you, if you've tracked with that show for any number of years, you know that in the early 90s, Chris Farley died really suddenly, and that was a really tragic thing for a number of the cast members. And over, over the years, other cast members have come and, and done these you know, bits where they've honored Chris Farley, where they've remembered him. And there was this moment when David Spade, his best buddy, was, was remembering Chris Farley, and he started talking. He says, like, I just, I know he's here tonight. I know he's here tonight, and he's smiling down on us, and he's in a place where the laughter never stops. He's in a place where he's making everybody laugh. And he, and he goes on, and, and it's, it's, it's sentimental, and it's sweet, and obviously it's coming from a place of love, but at the same time, it's like, you listen to it, and you're like, how do you know that? Um, on what basis would you know that Chris Farley is here laughing with us and smiling upon us and giving us laughter? Like, what is that based on? It's just, it's just something that feels nice to think, right? It's a kind of hope that's not grounded in anything. And so it's a kind of sentimentalism that doesn't have a lot to offer other people. It's just a way of coping that's based kind of on wishing or creating some sort of fictional world that sounds better than what we know of the real one. And so that's one kind of hope that can drive us. And, and you know, I mean, maybe you've dealt with hard things in that way or you've heard other people deal with things in a hard way about the things that we say to one another or hear said in moments of grief or sorrow where there's some condolence that's offered that just feels empty, just feels like wishing or like fantasy. So the wishful thinking hope is one that I think uh, can, can lead us away from the kind of hope Paul's talking about. Another one would be like the bucket list hope. You know, the hope that's like, it's all about what happens before I kick the bucket, right? The experiences I need to have, whatever, whatever needs to happen in my life or in the world in the space between my birth date and my death date. It's a hope that is entirely based on the here and now and it crumbles Inevitably, when we hit those places in life where the things that we wanted for ourselves in the here and now don't happen or we lose them, right? It's a fragile hope because it's always one disappointment or failure or loss away from vanishing. And that kind of hope, uh, it's, it's fragile, but it's not only fragile, it's also, it's also dangerous because what happens is that kind of hope can begin to compete with grief, you know, talking about grief as roommates who share a room, that kind of hope can begin to say, I don't know how to coexist with grief. Because what I want in the here and now is happiness, and the grief doesn't seem to be serving that purpose. And so that kind of hope and grief end up locked up in a zero-sum kind of game, where only one of them can win. And so what that hope does is it leads us into places where we try to escape grief. We try to avoid grief. We try to avoid pain. We cut it off. We stuff it away. We try to escape it through our self-medication or distractions or pleasurable experiences to help tip those scales of the here and now away from grief and toward enjoyment. That's a counterfeit hope. That's not a resurrection hope. And it's one that we're all probably more liable to than we realize. And I know I certainly am. And then a third kind of counterfeit hope, I think, that's not a resurrection hope would be that pie-in-the-sky kind of hope, right? It's that one where it's a hope that's aimed at a heavenly future that is detached from present earthly grief. That what really matters is heaven and not earth. That what really matters is the soul and not the body. 
And if that's the way that we hope, that's not a resurrection hope. That's like an escaping death sort of hope. And grief, in that case, is like a waste of time. Or worse, it's unbelief. Grief in that way of living is a kind of thing that's evidence of lack of faith. It's like a detached stoicism. And that kind of hope can lead us to cut short a grieving process because we feel like we always need to rescue it. We always need to rescue ourselves from grieving or rescue one another from grieving by inserting some sort of hopeful, future-oriented, but it's all really okay, right, sort of statement that makes grief impossible and can produce guilt and shame for going through it. So those are three counterfeit hopes that compete with the robust resurrection hope, I think, that Paul is commending to the Thessalonians in this passage. And so, that's, so if that's what it doesn't look like, what does it look like? To grieve in a way that's transformed by resurrection hope, I think, looks like joining God in grieving what God grieves. It looks like making space for lamentation in both our public and private lives. It looks like entering into grief. Entering into grief, actually going there, actually making space to sit with your grief and with the grief of others, to experience it, to explore it, to listen to it, to remember it, to share it with others, knowing that you can actually go into the depths because the one who has risen and ascended is going there with you. And that he's bringing you through it and beyond it, that you won't stay stuck forever in the valley of the shadow of death. It's actually the resurrection hope that allows us to go into grief in a way that we, we begin to experience the possibility of healing. It looks like entrusting our grief to God and to one another, allowing others to bear our burdens and walking with others in order to, be, to bear theirs. And it looks like waiting with Jesus and all his people for that fullness, for that day, when he does return and he does wipe away every tear from every eye and he does make right all the injustices and all that is wrong in the earth where he does actually override sickness and death so that life persists in the world forever and the things that are lost are lost no more. To wait for that day, to bear witness to the reality of the promise of that day, to bear witness to the reality of the God who makes that promise, and who is our hope. Resurrection hope, it enables us to grieve deeply in a Jesus way. Neither the shallow avoidance of minimizing grief nor the crushing despair and darkness of grief without hope. The question grieving people are so often asked in the midst of grief is how are you doing, right? Maybe you have a conscientious friend who comes alongside and, and says it in more of a, of, a, of a real way. No, how are you really doing? And the answers that we give and that we get are often like something like, I'm doing okay, or I'm not doing well, or I'm doing well. And often what we mean by those answers, or even what we're seeking by asking the question, is simply, how sad are you? How frequently and how deeply are you experiencing a lot of sadness? But the thing is, that's not actually a very good metric of to what extent are you grieving well? Because real grief, when done well, is sad. We see that in the life of Jesus himself. 
To grieve well isn't about getting out of the sadness quickly. It's about entering into it fully in fellowship with Jesus who goes there with you and leads you through it and beyond it into resurrection life. It's about going in there, trusting him, not fundamentally going in there uh, with an ultimate hope that all things will be right in the here and now, but with an ultimate hope that God is in fact making all things new and you can trust him. It's about entering into death and fellowship with the risen Christ who's passed through the valley, who hasn't tried to go around it, but who's gone through it. And it's as much about embracing grief as it is about embracing hope. And I need to admit, personally, I'm not good at grieving. I am, at best, a novice griever. Um, I haven't had as much practice as many people I know whose lives are marked by profound grief and hope, who are often the people that I want to grow up to be like, while at the same time, simultaneously, not wanting to have to walk the path that they have walked to become who they are. Some of you are those people. I have a lack of practice in grieving that's not simply, though, a statement about my situational realities that are beyond my control. We all have our own stories, and God is in control of all that. But part of my lack of practice, admittedly, is my unwillingness to go there, <laughs> my unwillingness to actually enter in and to, to kind of do that work of grieving and learning to grieve, uh, to go in and sit long enough in places of real pain and real brokenness, real hardship, in order to understand those things, in order to let those be what they need to be and what they actually really are, whether I'm aware of them or not, so that I might actually be made more whole in the presence of God who meets me in that space and grows me up more and more into the likeness of Jesus, this man of sorrows, the risen one. My default setting is just to not do that stuff. My default setting is to, is to find that silver lining and cling to it and just not stay in the grief long enough for it to be important in any way in my life. That's just the way I'm wired. And some of you are wired that way too and others of you are wired very differently. I do this without thinking about it, without noticing it, and so I know that I need schooling in learning how to grieve, which is also to say that I need schooling in learning how to hope in a way that has teeth. And as Tuck mentioned a couple weeks ago, there are three things we need, right? Three relationships that we need in life if we are to be growing in this life of faith. We need the sages, we need the spiritual guides, and we need allies who are with us along the way. Uh, and I've had the blessing and continue to have the blessing of many of those, but I'd like to share with you a sage who's been particularly helpful to me. Um, Nicholas Wolterstorff, who has this wonderful little book, Lament for a Son, that I think is probably the most powerful and beautiful single little artifact of a manifestation of grief and hope sharing a room in someone's soul in a way that is profoundly compelling. And there's a little excerpt from it on your bulletin, but I wanna just close by reading you this because I just think there's so many, so many beautiful entries. He wrote this book in the year following the tragic death of his son, who died at age 25 in a mountain climbing accident. And so this book is really journal entries written over the course of a whole year uh, as he shares really personally and really powerfully his own reflections on his experience of a lament for a son. And here's just a little excerpt. Why don't you just scrap this God business, says one of my bitter suffering friends. It's a rotten world. You and I have been shafted and that's that. I'm pinned down. 
When I survey this gigantic, intricate world, I cannot believe that it just came about. I do not mean that I have some good arguments for its being made and that I believe in the arguments. I mean that this conviction wells up irresistibly within me when I contemplate the world. The experiment of trying to abolish it does not work. When looking at the heavens, I cannot manage to believe that they do not declare the glory of God. When looking at the earth, I cannot bring off the attempt to believe that it does not display his handiwork. And when I read the New Testament and look into the material surrounding it, I'm convinced that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was raised from the dead. And that I see the sign that he was more than a prophet. He was the Son of God. Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. I'm standing there now, over the chasm. I inspect the bridge. Am I deluded in believing that in God the question shouted out by the wounds of the world has its answer? Am I deluded in believing that someday I will know the answer? Am I deluded in believing that once I know the answer, I will see that love has conquered? I cannot dispel the sense of conducting my inspection in the presence of the creating, resurrecting one. It's one of my favorite little excerpts. I commend the book to you wholeheartedly. And if you're someone who struggles to grieve, I just invite you, will you make space for grief? If you're like me, will you make space to actually go into that place, into the valley, because there's no other path to wholeness except for going through it? And if you're one who struggles to hope, will you be reminded of what Walter Storff just says right here? That you do so You walk through this painful existence in life. You walk through sorrows and you walk with others through sorrow in the presence of the creating, resurrecting one who's called you to himself, who will make all things new. He is your hope. May God give us grace to live with that. Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks on this Ascension Day for your son, Jesus who came to earth, who lived among us in a way that showed forth your promised future world, your glory, your honor, your dignity, your love, who died under the weight of the sorrows of this world, who was raised to new life, who ascended to his heavenly throne, whom we await even today as we look forward to his return. Would you give us the hope that we need to move forward in faith? Would you give us the hope that we need to understand our stories more fully, to know your love more personally and powerfully, and to be more helpful to those around us, to this world that needs to know the hope that is theirs in Christ? Would we know that hope ourselves? Holy Spirit, meet us, move us, and grow us up more and more into the likeness of our Lord Jesus, the Ascended One, in whose name we pray, amen.